The truth is that for 1,500 years, Christianity was the assumed religion in Western culture, in Europe, in North America. That is no longer the case. When we, when we walk down the streets now, we're not able to assume that most people share our understanding, share our values. And that has been a very disorienting thing for the church. When we talk about what bearing witness in this type of a context looks like, what making disciples looks like in this context, I think it's helpful for us to go back, back before a lot of Christian history. I think you can look at the early church for some great examples of what it means to bear witness in a culture that isn't Christian. Although, looking at the book of Acts is a little bit tough because it's kind of like telling a young hockey player, hey, let's go watch some videos of Wayne Gretzky. That's how you should play hockey. <laughs> Don't you think? Like, when I, when I read the book of Acts, I see some pretty heroic stuff going on. I'm like, man, I think I can get some, some tips from this, but these are superstars. They're doing some pretty crazy things, and I'm not sure I'm there yet. So I'd actually like to go even further back. Before Christian history even began, I'd like to go back to the Jews who found themselves in exile. In fact, I'd like to go to a book called Daniel. Because Daniel is one of the books that was written during the exile, and we get to see the way that Daniel and his friends respond to being outside of a context of faith and suddenly thrust into a context where nobody around them shares their values. I think we can glean a lot from the story in Daniel 1 about what it means for us to bear witness in our context, in a culture that has left behind a lot of the things that we value and understand. So let's go into that. I'm going to pray, and then we can start in on Daniel 1. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning. Even in a culture that doesn't share our values, we have the freedom to come, to worship, to pray, to open your word, to speak it freely. Father, that's not something we take for granted. We know there are still today many people worldwide who do not share that right. And I pray that as we open your word, you would speak to each of us, that you would encourage us, and that, and that we might get a glimpse of what it means to bear witness what it looks like to live a life of faith in a context that is hostile to your message. Bless us here. Be present. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to go through it in three pieces. We're, 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 going, to, we're going to first start by looking at what it is that Daniel was facing <clears throat> and how, how it compares to our current context. Now we're going to look at his response. And we're going to th see three things. We're going to see that Daniel chooses to be different in his words and action. We see that he chooses to care for his neighbors. And we see that he trusts God to do the rest of the picture, to do the rest of the work. Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels from the house of God 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Most of you are probably familiar with the names that are listed here. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They conjure up a lot of stories from our Sunday school days, do they not? These are people who are generally regarded as heroic, and and some of the stories show a lot of bravery on their part. Being able to continue praying even when it costs Daniel his life by being thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being willing to not bow down before the statue even though it's going to get them thrown into a fiery furnace. And we see how God was faithful to them through those things. But it's important, before we even start thinking about the way they they live their lives, to understand what they were really going through. This, This first chapter is breezing through something that's incredibly heavy. The events described early on, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is the type of thing that shook the Jews. This was was the end of hundreds of years of the nation of Judah resisting enemy nations all around them. They had watched as, bit by bit, the nation of Israel had gone from its place under King David, where it was a mighty nation in the land, where they had been conquering the place God had called them to, and they had really been establishing themselves in in this place that God had set aside for them. And slowly but surely, as king after king was not faithful, God sent punishment their way. It first came in the form of a couple of attacks, and then the northern tribes ended up getting taken by Assyria. But the southern tribes resisted, they had a few better kings who, who were able to stay a little bit more faithful. And this is where the temple was. So they saw that they, their understanding at the time was that no one would ever conquer Jerusalem. No one. That surely God might allow other tribes to be taken away. But, but Jerusalem, the place where he dwells, that would always be safe. Oh, here it ends. After another faithless reign... God finally sends the king of Babylon to take Judah, to take Jerusalem, and to take the last remnants of the Holy Land from Israel. What he does is pretty violent, pretty hard to grapple with. The first thing it mentions is that he took vessels from the temple, stripped this holy place, and brought all of the things he found there into the temple of his gods. 
This is a sign of real conquest. God, you think you're strong? Not as strong as my God. This is humiliating for the Jews. This is humiliating for God, at least in their understanding of it. And then he takes a bunch of young people, the brightest, the smartest, the noble, the royalty, and he takes them from their land and he makes them learn their language and their customs. We're going to make your brightest and best into our people. So you don't have any hope of recovering your culture. Our culture is going to dominate yours so thoroughly that even your educated people will be ours. I think it's, it's hard on some level to really grasp what this would be like for us. I think, I think today it may be the equivalent of ISIS coming and raiding Auburn Bible Chapel. <laughs> Maybe taking our hands and burning them. <laughs> and, and certainly breaking any signs of the cross that they see around here. And then they're going to take some of the young people and they're going to bring them back and force them to become part of the military back in Iran, in Iraq. Maybe they take Rochelle. Maybe they take Emily. Maybe they take Daniel. Probably they leave Dave because he's not one of the best and brightest. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Had to get the one in. <laughs> but seriously, they, they, this, this would be a pretty shocking thing for us, I think, if suddenly we were to be subject to some sort of terrorist attack and they were to take away the best and brightest from among us and subject them to their, their cultural dominance. So maybe we don't have an exact parallel in this story. But just as much as we don't want to overplay how much we can relate to Daniel and his friends, I think we don't want to downplay how much we can relate to them either. You see, the truth is our culture has gone through a massive Overhaul. 20 or 25 years ago, it was normal for people to pray in schools, for Sundays to have all of the stores in town closed. Morally, the biggest debates that were being faced by the church was whether it was okay to drink, whether it was okay to dance, whether it was okay to gamble, whether it was okay to smoke cigarettes. Our context now has blown all of that right out of the water, has it not? Not only don't they pray in schools now, they're shutting down the opportunity for city councils to pray. This is something that came out in Peterborough recently. Not only are stores not closed on Sundays, there's no sense of a cultural Sabbath. I don't think things slow down at all on Sundays. I think there are probably more people in Walmart on a Sunday morning in Peterborough than there are in church. And morally, you talk about the morality. Drinking? You're lucky if young people aren't drinking every single day of the week. Smoking, forget cigarettes. There's all sorts of other things that are being smoked now. Marijuana is pretty on its way to being legalized. Sexuality, something that maybe wasn't even hugely on the radar within the church. Divorce was maybe a big problem that was peeking its head up 30 years ago. Now we have to deal with whether it's okay to be homosexual, and not only homosexual, 
But whether it's okay to be transsexual or cross-gendered or any number of different things. And then there's other things that are even hard to imagine how, how awful they seem by God's standards. Things like euthanasia, things like abortion, norms in our culture, things that are beginning to be fought for in courts. For those of us who have been raised in the church, it's really hard to grapple with the changes that have gone in our culture. The overhaul that has taken place in a very short period of time is very disorienting. It's no surprise that we feel hurt, defensive, isolated. Like we kind of have to bunker down against this because we certainly, we certainly don't know if we can even survive this, let alone try and start taking back some of that ground. We can relate to Daniel and his friends being stripped of all that they're familiar with, taken out of a place where God is worshipped freely and put into a context where everything they're seeing seems wrong. But is defensiveness the right response? I think the answer is no. I think Daniel and his friends show this over the rest of the chapter. We can learn from their response. Daniel and his friends do three things that we can learn from. The first is they choose to be different. The second is that they care for the people around them. And the third is that they trust God to do the greater work of changing the culture. Starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. One verse, but it captures a whole world of cultural dialogue that's taking place here. It seems like a simple request. I don't want to eat what you're eating. I don't want to drink what you're drinking. But what Daniel's asking is not solely hey, can I be a vegetarian, the way that we might think of it today. He's actually saying to the eunuch, I don't want to worship your gods. Because all of this meat, all of the wine, was prepared sacrificially in Babylon. It would have been slaughtered before the pagan gods, and people who were eating it were understood to be partaking in that ceremony. They were actually part of the worship of those gods. So what Daniel's saying here is not just, I don't want to eat what you're eating. It's, I will not bow down to your gods. We don't know the whole conversation. It could have been a pretty simple one. Hey, I don't want to do this. More likely, he got approached with a little bit of skepticism. He had to say, you know, I, I really do believe Yahweh is the only true God. I think he's good. I think he's much better than these other gods. And, and I, I actually think that by eating these things, I'm going to be cursed rather than blessed. I want to avoid these foods that have been sacrificed to these idols. We have to stand out in word and deed. 
We talked about the number of different moral things that are going on in the culture around us. On some level, that's completely out of our control. We can stand up here at the pulpit and preach all we want against the evils going on in the world around us. But you know what? Those people are not sitting here. So preaching on that is really a little bit futile. But what we can do is call each other to a faithful life. A life in which we recognize God has standards that are good for us. That God is himself good, laid down his life for us, took the punishment for sin on his shoulders, and that what he calls us to is not a loss, but is actually life-giving. And so when we deal with any question in our conversations, whether it's simply how to be a good neighbor or whether it's how to deal with sexuality or whether it's how to deal with gluttony or alcoholism, and we talk about God's standards on all of these fronts, we do so through the lens that these are good things God has put before us. That he's not asking us to simply bow down to his standards, but that God is really good and he wants what's best for us. If the church could really live a gospel life where we loved the way the gospel calls us to, where we actually fought sin in our lives the way the gospel calls us to, if we were to be the type of congregation that really believed and lived like Jesus is Lord, that would be a powerful thing in our culture. What if divorce was to become non-existent in our church? What, what if we were to fight so hard to deal with issues in our marriages that we didn't have to go there? Or if we did, it would be very, very rare. What if we made sure that not one of the young women in our circle of influence had to have an abortion? Would that not be a powerful testimony? Forget about trying to change the hearts of all those out there. What if we just started by really helping young women who are in crisis? Helen's doing a number of fundraisers for the Peterborough Pregnancy Support Services. That's their mission. <laughs> I love the Peterborough Pregnancy Support Services because they understand that if you want to stop abortion, it starts with helping women. <laughs> what if we were to be that type of community to really help women? There's any number of issues we could go into this way. We want to stand apart from the culture around us to be the type of community that shows how good God's standards are. Daniel demonstrates his willingness to do that, even though I'm sure the conversation was a little bit scary for him when he first approached it. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 9, we're told, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. But then his question is interesting. The chief of the eunuchs says to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. For why would he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. You see, the eunuch sees Daniel's heart. He recognizes there's something honest about him. But he knows that if he goes along with Daniel, this is going to be costly to him. And so his question is, how can you ask me to do this if it's probably going to cost me my head? I get that you want to be pure in your worship, but man, I've got a lot on the line here. Daniel could have said to him, hey man, that's your problem. You know what? I don't want to eat your food. So too bad for you. If, if you don't give me other food, I'm just going to starve to death. See how your king likes that. He could, he could have easily stuck it in the eunuch's face and said, sorry, but I, I'm going I'm to gain control over this situation and make you give me what I want. That's not how he responds. Instead, Daniel responds compassionately. He recognizes that if he's going to ask this man to do this, he really needs to be looking after his needs. And so he strikes a bargain with him. He takes a step of faith. He says, okay, give me 10 days. Do what I ask for just a period of time. And if at any point you see that I'm getting weak, that I'm getting sluggish, that I'm not as good as the other people around me, okay, I'll eat the food. Do you think that's an easy thing for Daniel to do? I don't think so. It's got to be playing in his mind, oh God, what if, I, you know, what if I just set myself up for failure? What if I literally just said, I'm willing to go into idolatry if this doesn't work out? That's not an easy thing to do. Okay. Give me 10 days to help you figure out your problems. If after those 10 days, nothing's helped, then I'll go to the abortion clinic with you. That's kind of like what he's saying here. That's a hard thing for Daniel to say. Daniel recognizes how very important it is in his witness to this man. If he really wants this man to understand God's goodness, he can't start by simply trying to force it down his throat. He's got to demonstrate it by risking things with him. Demonstrating Christ-like love, as it were. We've got to be that type of people. This is really what Daryl's message last week was touching on over and over again, wasn't it? We need to live in relationship. We need to have compassion for those around us. We need to actually think of their needs as our needs. We have to have the eyes of God to see people as broken and hurting and looking for hope and be willing to take even risks to make sure that they can find that hope. So Daniel makes this test. He's taking a step of faith. The cool part is, God blesses this and many more things. It says in, in verse 14, So the eunuch listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That's right. 
How many vegetarians do you know who are better in appearance and fatter in flesh than the people around you who eat meat? Not too many. Some of them have really strict diets where they're eating nice whey proteins and stuff and working out all the time. But the truth is, meat is nice and fattening. There's lots of protein in it. It helps you be stronger a lot of the time. Give me vegetables and water. See how much fast, how quickly I lose weight. I guarantee you. <laughs> I will lose a lot of weight fast. <laughs> but God honors Daniel. He sees the risk that he took. And God blesses him by making him better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. But it doesn't stop there. As for these youths, it says, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God takes this little act of faith, this willingness to stand out, this willingness to care for the people around them, and he honors them in that. And he explodes their opportunity to witness in this culture. Puts them at the right hand of the kings. And they do it for multiple kings. Read the first six chapters of Daniel. I think there's three or four kings who are converted as a result of these young men. That's amazing. Can you imagine three or four prime ministers of Canada being converted by you? That'd be pretty cool if you could say that. <laughs> That's the type of influence that he gave these men. And it all started with a willingness to be different and to care for the people around them. You see, when we look at a culture that's as big, out of control, a little bit scary as ours, I don't think any one of us can answer, how do we change this? We can't. That's completely out of our control. Not one of us has that answer. But the cool part is we don't have to. God in his sovereignty, God's spirit working in the hearts of people around us will give us favor, will allow us opportunities to shape the culture around us if we're willing to be faithful in the little things. When I first went into ministry, I saw all sorts of problems in the world for the first time. I began to walk alongside people who were hurting in ways I had never imagined. And so the process of me growing in my ministry has been an interesting one. On one hand, I've come to see the world as less and less black and white. When I first went in, I thought, you know, right and wrong are pretty easy to answer. What's going to help and what's not is pretty easy to answer. There are problems and I've got solutions to those problems. It's not true. There's a lot of hurts that I don't have answers for. But on the other hand, I've come to see my task as simpler and simpler. 
For a long time, I thought it was to figure out all of the answers. But increasingly, I realized I can't. All I can really do is walk with the Holy Spirit. Be faithful in the little things and trust him to open the doors for those other things. The millions of grays that I don't even know how to handle in my own strength. So what does it look like to bear witness in exile? When we're in a context that is foreign and even a little bit hostile to our faith. I think in Daniel's story, this one chapter, we can see laid out the three things that we need to keep in mind. First, we need to stand out. We need to be different in our word and in our deeds. We have to have hope and live like we have hope. Secondly, we need to care for those around us. We need to look out for their needs, be willing to take risks for them, and demonstrate God's love for them in so doing. And we need to trust God. We need to really count on him to be the one bringing about the greater change. If you're still asking, okay, I'd like to go a little further into this, though. This is where I get to plug what's coming next. We've been working on projects the last little while that we call core classes. We've been doing courses on things that we think are really essential to Christian discipleship. We did a baptism course. We've done a financial stewardship course. And now, over the next six weeks, we're going to do a course on this, witnessing to the gospel in our culture. We're going to cover six topics. Being intentional in building relationships. Praying for people. Being a blessing to others. Sharing your story. Telling about how God has acted in your life. Sharing the gospel. Helping others see how God wants to meet them in their life. And lastly, answering tough questions. Because you will find there are some hard questions to answer. I'd like to invite you. Come out. It's going to be before church on Sundays. 9 o'clock. There's free coffee. Maybe even free donuts if we get enough people. And I hope we're going to have some really good conversations about these things, just to look at a little bit further what it looks like to bear witness in our context. But to close, I'd like to invite up a good mentor of mine, Stan. Would you you come forward? Because I think in all of this, in those six things that I just named, there's one that stands out as particularly scary for us. That's sharing the gospel. Stan has been involved at my ministry at Trent, for a number of years, back to when I was a student. And I've learned a lot from Stan. If you want to take a seat, Stan, we can sit together instead of standing. And Stan has a very simple approach to sharing the gospel that I I really find helpful. And so I'd like to ask him about that now, just kind of as an encouragement to everybody. Stan, first, could, could I ask you, though, if you're comfortable, would you would you be willing to give me an estimate of how many people you've helped lead to the Lord? Uh, I, have to, I have to really think about that. But uh, basically, uh, I have to say it's over 100. Wow. See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> For me, even that is inspiring. As, as a ministry worker, I wish I could say that I had come anywhere near 100 in terms of people that I had led to the Lord. 
But Stan, something that you've encouraged me in, in my ministry, is that I don't have to make things more complicated than they ought to be. And you talk about four questions that you ask people to help lead them to Christ. So could you start with the first question? What's the, what's the first question you ask? Uh, yes, Ben. Uh, I like to keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and the very first question that I think is essential to ask if you're witnessing to someone uh, and uh, hopefully intend to lead them to the Lord, the first basic foundation question to me is, do you believe in God? Uh, our world has changed a lot in the last 50 or 60 years. My memory does go back that far. <laughs> uh, and 50 years or so ago, you wouldn't have to ask. You would be able to ask almost anyone if they believed in God, and the answer would probably be yes. But today, that has changed. Uh, evolution is so interwoven into the educational system that there are many people, especially younger people, who are being uh, instructed that, in, a, in effect, there is no God. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to win somebody to the Lord, the very first requirement is they need to believe that there is a God. If they don't believe there's any God, then you're only going to waste your time. There's no point in trying to argue with them and convince them by your own arguments that there is a God. Uh, God is able to manifest himself to people And if you pray, and that's my attitude, if the person were to say, no, I don't believe in God, I would say, well, can I pray for you? Because God is able to reveal himself. And very, very often, if the person is seeking, he will do that. Thank you. What was the second question then, following up, when when you think somebody really believes in God? If someone says, yes, they believe in God, or even if they say, I would like to, I think you're free to go on. Uh, the second question, of course, is do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins? These are the two basic facts of Christianity. If you don't believe in God, well, forget it. There's no point in going any further. God is able to reveal himself to them, but you can't. If they will answer the second question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins? Then the door is open for you to proceed. Again, if they say no, uh, that becomes a very difficult thing. And about the only alternative I believe that you have is to ask them if you can pray for them because God is able to change hearts. Do I have a... Okay, there we go. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm assuming along with that question, you might be doing some basic teaching. You might open scripture with them a little bit. But ultimately, they have to answer that question themselves. And, and that's why... Yes, exactly. Uh, you didn't ask me what the third question was. Yep, and so I just wanted to make sure that we're understanding. It's not, it's not that you're resisting. You know, we can, we can do some basic teaching, but but we need to keep on proceeding. So then can you, can, you, can you say what the third question is? Yes. If you have a uh, 
pen or a pencil or a piece of paper, you might want to jot these down. Because if you're going to try to win someone to the Lord, it is very, very important that you understand the premise on which you're approaching them. As I mentioned, the first question, do you believe in God? Most people are not offended by that question. And that's an easy question to start with, and it is basically foundational. Second question is a little harder. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for our sins? You probably will find some people who will say, no, I don't believe that. But if they will say, yes, I believe that, you know that the Holy Spirit has already been at work in their heart somehow. And the third question, which is very key, is will you invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior? I think you missed one. Oh, I did. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I jumped to the last question. It's a good thing I know this already. <laughs> good job we went over it before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, the third question really is, and it's still essentially basic, do you believe that you are a sinner? Now, many people will say, or some people will say, no, I don't believe that I'm a sinner. Uh, but the Bible teaches very differently. Uh, the Bible says, well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So if they have had any Bible instruction at all, they may very well say, yes, I've made lots of mistakes. I guess you could say that's sin. And in fact, that is true. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. I remember one instance where I was witnessing to a young man, and uh, a very well-educated man. In fact, he had spent three years in a religious seminary. And when it came to that third question, I said, do you believe you're a sinner? And he said, no. And I was, I was almost thunderstruck to think that someone had gone through three years of Bible teaching and still would not be prepared to confess they were a sinner. But you know, again, the Holy Spirit is able to do what we can't do. So I said to him, well, can I pray for you? Would you come back next week? I'd like to pray for you this week that God will open your eyes to understand. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll come back next week. And he did. And God did an amazing thing when he came back the next week. He was virtually in tears. And he said, yes, I know I'm a sinner. I was then able to lead him in the fourth part, which is a prayer of accepting Jesus as a Lord and Savior. Would you give us an example of that prayer? Sure. Uh, keep it simple. <laughs> That's the first thing. Keep it simple and very straightforward. The first thing you ought to, well, I'll lead you in a, what I would say is a classical prayer. It's sometimes called the sinner's prayer. I like to refer to it as the Christian prayer of faith and commitment. Did you get that? The Christian prayer of faith and commitment. And that prayer ought to be, it doesn't have to be exactly these words, 
but it should be in effect these words. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I ask you to forgive my sins, come into my heart, my life to be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Now, why is it that simple? (laughs) It isn't a lifetime of good works that will save you. Paul said so clearly in Romans chapter 10 and 9, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved or born again. The two words mean the same thing in Scripture. And that's pretty simple. If you will confess with your mouth. He does not say, if you will lead 35 years of good life, then I'll consider it. (laughs) He doesn't say, if you will be baptized. I will consider it. He doesn't say that if you are confirmed, I will consider it. No, it's based on your confession of Jesus as Lord. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. That's the confession. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead. Obviously, you can say those words and not mean it. And if you don't mean it, it's foolishness. It doesn't mean a thing. You might better not say words that you don't mean. But if you will say them and mean them, God will do the miracle. And that miracle is new life in Christ Jesus. In John chapter 3, and verse 3, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the world doesn't like that term very well, and the world doesn't like the term being saved very well either. But we as Christians should not be embarrassed or afraid to use him. Jesus used those terms very clearly. He said, Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. It is a spiritual new birth that you will be entering on or encouraging someone else to enter on. So I hope I've made it simple. That was great, Stan. Thank but you. that last prayer is vitally important, and you should understand in your mind and have it very clear how you're going to lead that person that you're witnessing to in that prayer. Don't get into a whole lot of arguments. If they will say these words after you, God, the Holy Spirit, will do the miracle. You can't do the miracle, but God will, I promise you. Thank you, Stan. And and the encouragement for me is that those simple questions are things I can use wherever I go. Do you believe in God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and died for our sins? Do you believe that you're a sinner? And will you accept Jesus as Lord?
into your heart. Those are things that can spark a huge conversation, whether you're at your workplace, whether you're sitting beside somebody you brought to church, or whether you're on a university campus and you want to get into some real interesting discussions. And, and so for me, it was encouraging, learning from Stan and, and some of the change that he's seen as a result of that, knowing the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing how the Holy Spirit works in people's lives after that prayer is pretty incredible. So thank you, Stan. Thank you, Ben. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for those saints around us who can show us the, the beauty of a life lived with you, witnessing to others. Thank you for Daniel and his friends and their witness that we read about this morning. And thank you for Stan and his encouragement. I pray that each and every one of us would find joy in being able to stand out in our culture, to live faithfully, and to bless those around us with hope, and with love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.